Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, and The Wellness Trap, which came out on April 25th and is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash The Wellness Trap. Hey there, welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is anti-diet Pilates instructor Helen Phelan Guillemot. We discuss her history as a dancer and how that affected her relationship with food and her body, how she moved from disordered eating into wellness obsession, how she's come to hate toxic fitness culture but still loves working out, how to know when you need to take a break from fitness, why we don't need to constantly self-optimize, and more. This is a great conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you shortly. Before I do, just a few quick announcements. This podcast is brought to you by my second book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is available wherever books are sold. The book explores a lot of the themes we talk about on this podcast, including the connections between diet and wellness culture, how the wellness space became overrun with scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, and how you can avoid those traps, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book. That's christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap or go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. This podcast is made possible by my paid subscribers on Substack. Not only do paid subscriptions help support the show and keep me able to make the best free content I possibly can, but they also get you great perks like early access to every episode, bonus episodes, including one I did with this week's guest, Helen, bi-weekly bonus Q&As, subscriber-only comment threads where you can connect with other listeners, and lots more. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to learn more and sign up. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. And thanks so much to everyone who's signed up and become a paid subscriber so far. Now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Helen Phelan Gimo. So welcome to the show, Helen. I'm so excited to talk with you today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. And I'd love to start off by just having you tell us a bit about your history with wellness culture, which I know has been a long and winding path as it is for many of us, and how you came to do the work that you do now. Absolutely. Uh, So TLDR, I started dancing when I was three. I'll try to summarize. Three. Oh my God. Yeah. Apparently I was uh, trilling around the house after seeing Pocahontas and my mom was like, huh, there's something there. And I was very hyperactive. So I, I do feel very lucky that my mom was intuitive and, and, and knew that it was something that I would enjoy. You, of course, hear horror stories of people being forced to do sports and stage parents. And you know my parents were never like that. Uh, however, even if you love something, there can still be you know shadowy, sort of toxic aspects of it. So it goes without saying, growing up in the dance world, I was exposed to a lot of really unhealthy 
negative body image relationship to food stuff. And I have a lot of empathy for, you know, the authority figures that were in my life there because it was never intentional. It was never malicious. It was never meant as harm. It was always meant as so many of these things you see online are. Um, people think that they're doing something that they're helping you. They're going to help you get further in your career. They're, they're caring about you. They just are not necessarily fully educated or aware of the depth of how that can be impacted. So there was that. And then I, of course, developed some disordered eating and I worked really hard on recovering from that. And that's when I found wellness. And I sort of tricked myself into thinking I was fully recovered when I found wellness because I was so fixated on being healthy. And I thought that was such an improvement. And in a way, it, it was a baby step towards getting better, but it just became a new thing to control and a new obsession. And I got really intense about the type of food that I was eating in a different way than I had been, you know, in the quote textbook manifestation of disordered eating. Did you get professional help at all for, for the disordered eating? I did. Yes. I was, I was in and out of therapy from like middle school on actually, because it was apparent from a young age. But I also, even when I was diving into wellness, I did have a therapist also that I, I brought up orthorexia with. And I was like, sometimes I worry that I've just like transferred these feelings. And, you know, she was like, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be healthy. And it's an unfortunate instance of that. I think a lot of people have gone through where a lot of mental health professionals, because it is so gray, it is so nuanced, have a hard time being able to recognize when the orthorexia is or the, the wellness behavior is turning into orthorexia because it's not officially recognized. So I, I do think I spent a long time in, I was called that my limbo era of thinking that I was doing all the right things, but still feeling really bad and having this difficult relationship with, with exercise, food, and my body. It's so interesting that you had that intuition that maybe you were just trading in the sort of textbook disordered eating for more orthorexic thinking. What do you think sort of alerted you to that? Well, I've never really been one to do things halfway. That's sort of in my personality. And that is something that shows up in, I think, a lot of people who, who have this sort of relationship with wellness. But I think just the fatigue, I was still feeling as exhausted as I felt in the middle of my official eating disorder. And I knew that it was not normal to think about food as much as I did. And I actually talked about this when I did Katie's podcast, um, like two years ago, I know. But when I moved in with my partner, who is French, and you know, he is also a, a cis straight white man, has a very different relationship with his body and food. And I think that also mirrored to me how how obsessive my behaviors were and the cultural difference too really highlighted i think like america is this interesting case study of wellness culture and because it's you know there there's fat phobia and and issues with wellness all around the world but it is there is something like linked to capitalism and the american dream and all of that tied up in how americans negotiate wellness so i think after a few months of living with my partner i was like oh <laughs> That this doesn't seem like the right way to do things. So how old were you when you were going through all of this? Uh, let's see. We moved in together when I was 25. So I, you know, was going along 
through my 20s thinking that I was recovered. And also, it's sort of an unfortunate badge of honor, but it the disordered eating thing is something that I don't know any dancer, honestly, any woman in their or female identifying person in their early 20s, late teens, who has not had some sort of brush or negative emotion around this stuff. So it's really so much more, what's the word, global or or just everywhere than than some people think. Some people think it's just the, you know, the little ballerinas being really intense or models, but it's it's everywhere. Yeah, it is very pervasive for sure. That's the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What wellness trends did you really buy into and how did they sort of relate to dance for you? Well, I am a Pilates instructor and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit, but I got, I, I sort of made my whole identity fitness and, and Pilates specifically. And this also coincided with me deciding that I wasn't going to pursue dance professionally anymore. You know, when I moved to New York, I was auditioning and I had gotten a few gigs, but I was still feeling really, what's the word? Like not unfulfilled. I still love to dance, but it just the whole commercialization of that industry makes it really tough to exist in it if you're not in a good place with your body. And I was really loving teaching. So I sort of transferred that thing of my identity is, hi, I'm Helen, I'm a dancer to hi, I'm Helen, I'm a Pilates instructor. And like, I am, I don't want to, you know, say any triggering things, but I am all the things that you think of a really toxic wellness person doing and spending their time doing. And it just became the new way to transfer my obsession. So a lot of food related thoughts and I'd imagine probably concerns about purity of foods and perceived healthfulness and all of that stuff. Yes. Actually, one when you asked me when I knew something was up, I was actually in a a Whole Foods produce section with my mom. I was like home visiting for the weekend and literally in the produce section. So of all places to be having a meltdown. I I had a panic attack calculating all the the stuff in my head and I realized my my eyes were watering. I was tearing up in looking at salad and I was like, okay, this is this can't be healthy. That sounds really intense. So the food rules and the food beliefs about purity and cleanliness and all that stuff was really overwhelming, it sounds like. Yeah. And you know, I grew up my, my dad was a Marine and he was also an athlete and I was so focused on dance and I wanted to be so good and to be, to pursue something athletic professionally, you have to be a little bit single-minded. And so it, it was very hard for me to separate what is passion and dedication and what is actually a mental illness. And I'd argue that a lot of professional athletes are, are struggling with that, especially if you ever saw that, um, the weight of gold, I think it was that documentary about all the Olympians struggling with depression. It's, it's real. Not, not that I was an Olympian, but that is the top level of what you see there. Right. And the single-mindedness that is required is probably that much more intense at that level. But it's for all, totally. I mean, I've, I've known professional athletes as well. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it, def- <laughs> it definitely sort of makes you have to be obsessive about food in your body in some way. Yeah. And there are obviously wins that come with that, the successes that they get, but there is a cost. Absolutely. 
So it sounds like you started to realize that the cost was outweighing the benefit of pursuing dance in that way, at least. But then you sort of translated it to Pilates. Do you feel like you pursued Pilates in that kind of single-minded way at first? Totally. And also this is like 2014, 2015 boutique wellness boom of New York City. And, you know, like all the Instagram healers are coming out of the woodwork and stuff. And I got really, I still am interested in alternative modalities, but I got really down the rabbit hole of like manifestation and all of these things that can be really like spiritual bypassy and toxic in like a spiritual way too. And it just sort of became this negative bubble. That's interesting how negative those kinds of worlds can be. And I wrote a little bit in my new book about manifestation and the problems with it and sort of the weird roots of it and like new thought movement and also how toxic it can be for people who have any sort of propensity to anxiety and obsession because it starts to feel like the reason, you know, if anything goes wrong in my life, the reason is that I thought the wrong thoughts and I literally brought them into being with my thoughts. And, you know, I'm responsible for everything that happens to me, which is terrifying and overwhelming. And, you know, I wrote in the book about how, like, I sort of managed to skirt past the secret. I never ended up reading it, like, at the time (laughs) when it came out, but I definitely read self-help books that were influenced by that. And, like, you know, the idea of manifesting is kind of everywhere. But, you know, I wasn't so sucked into it. And then I started thinking about the problems with manifesting and how it connects to larger wellness culture and writing about it in this book. And I actually went and like looked at the secret in detail and found myself flooded with anxiety for at least a day after reading it, you know, and was like, oh my God, like, thank God I didn't encounter this when I was so much more vulnerable and would have probably tumbled into a pit of self-blame thinking that my thoughts literally create reality, you know, like, the magical thinking of that is so intense and so harmful. And, you know, on a somewhat related note, I was just having a really interesting conversation with a private Pilates client of mine. And she's also a yoga teacher. So she's very, and a former dancer, she's very attuned to her body. And we're having this discussion of, I was cueing her into a single leg bridge. And I was saying, you want to make sure both of your hip points are facing the ceiling without drop, don't drop one side down now that you're on one leg. And she was sort of talking it out with me out loud that she was like, it's so frustrating for me because I know that there's going to be a little bit of shift because it's impossible. You've removed all that support. I can literally feel because such strong interoception. She's like, I can feel like my organs shifting to the side, that subtle, teeny little weight shift. And it makes me feel like I'm doing it wrong. And I was like, do you feel your glutes working? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, do you feel your back feeling good? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, then you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's, It's just so Pilates really lends itself to because it's so specific. And so it's very satisfying for these type A type people, myself included. But it also it can, if if you don't get a hold of how much you're letting it get to you, it can undo you as well. We just have to like, try to negotiate this balance of like, how how far are we going to take a cue? How far are we going to take a self help book or an Instagram quote or whatever it is? It's just the lack of nuance on social media too. It makes it very hard for people to feel comfortable in the in-between. There's so much there. I want to unpack like that (laughs) idea of interoception is fascinating. And maybe we can circle back to that. But I was also curious to ask you like what role social media played in your wellness obsession? Oh my God. (laughs) 
it was also as I was, you know, getting into posting on Instagram and, you know, I was posting a bunch of exercises that I was doing. I was connecting to other Pilates instructors. I was a new instructor. So I used Instagram quite a bit for choreography inspiration. And so that was really positive. But also, you know, there's quite a bit of the like early aughts, no pain, no gain type of like fitspo quotes. And that was super negative. So at a certain point, I did have, I did somehow have the wherewithal to start unfollowing some of that stuff. And I actually credit one of my, one of my dance friends from college, who was also a trainer. She posted one Thanksgiving, a quote, something along the lines of, you know, instead of turkey burn, thinking of being grateful for your body, if you're working out today. And I was like, wow, that shouldn't be such a revolutionary sentiment. But it did give me pause to think about like, oh, why am I killing myself with a a workout just because that seems to be what I'm supposed to do today. So that sort of set me on this path of trying to seek out more anti-diet, body neutral content, even before I really had verbiage that that's what I was looking for. You know, I wasn't really searching by hashtags because I didn't really know what to search by. But I also did follow a lot of eating disorder recovery content. And there's also, I have the screenshot on my phone still. I screenshotted some recovery account that had, maybe you've seen this poem. It's like a little sketch of a flower. And it says, paraphrasing, I can't remember exactly. Think about how much it doesn't make sense that you're more afraid of a banana than you are of dying. And that's something that I still have saved on my phone. And it is just, it became clear to me that I needed more of those wake up calls on my feed because I was spending so much time scrolling. And so is that when you started to delve into like anti-diet intuitive eating kind of content? Yeah, I absolutely started curating, unfollowing a lot of fitness content. And, and, And that also became difficult because a lot of my peers are in that space and people that I care about in real life. But you know, we don't, exactly have the same views because people it takes time to sort of open up to this space because it is so antithetical to everything you're taught about health and wellness and and bodies especially if you do this as a profession so it's tough sometimes i use the mute button quite a bit (laughs) (laughs) and i i definitely seek out now that i have the vocabulary for things i definitely seek out following certain hashtags and making sure that the stuff that shows up in my feed is positive for me or it doesn't come up in my feed. Yeah, that's great. Sounds like it was a process to winnow that down a little bit. Oh yeah, this happened over many years. And in that time, I'm curious about like your own relationship with food and your body and exercise and physical activity like in that time because what you mentioned about interoception really strikes me like the way that people can get so obsessive about it dancers and people with that sort of intense sports background but I think especially dancers because of the placement of body parts being so important in dance I can imagine that you're just so constantly aware of any physical imbalances or shifts in in like weight or body placement and if that translates at all to you know at least for you if that translated to like a hyper awareness of hunger and fullness or sort of a fixation on those kinds of cues because 
I definitely see a lot of people getting really caught up with that. Like, am I really hungry? Am I really full? What's full enough? What's what's too hungry? What's hungry enough to eat? Like all of these sorts of questions that I think there's this diet culture message at the root of that, which is like, you're not allowed to eat unless you're quote unquote hungry enough and you have to stop eating when you're exactly the quote unquote right amount of full and all of that, which is really, you know, a twisting of intuitive eating and not helpful. But I think early in the process for so many people, they get sort of caught up in that interoception with food and with hunger and fullness, I think is harder for a lot of people. And for some people may never fully come because of neurodivergence issues or things like that. So anyway, I'm curious if any of that resonates for you or what your experience of interoception related to food was like. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you said, all athletes, but particularly dancers, ice skaters, gymnasts, because that's part of the technique is developing this equal parts superpower and curse of just being so painfully self-aware and you are able to do these incredibly like virtuosic movements but it can become this negative thought loop in your mind and i absolutely have had to have moments where i like step back and try and assess what actually are these sensations that i'm feeling and am i at the same time undoing a lifetime of trying to mute those hunger cues, those fullness cues, because I thought that I was doing something positive for my training, for my career. That's what you're told to do. And then you sort of weaken that that muscle of awareness there, being able to tell what's actually hunger, what is actually full. In the beginning, I definitely had to just like set timers and set like meal times and eat regardless of how I was feeling because it felt so foreign. And it was really scary, of course, at first, to go against all of the things that felt safe, all of the food rules, all of all of the things that I had gotten very comfortable doing. And, you know, people were praising me for having such good discipline and self-control. And it's, it's also very hard to, especially, you know, dancers are conditioned to like see themselves as someone else's instrument you know it's not the most independent way to foster a sense of agency you know you're used to being this malleable thing for someone else to create art with so it was very hard to go against things that were giving me like so much external validation and it you know it was also a process and again i don't know that if i hadn't been living with a partner and like us having cooking dinner together when I lived alone, I did not cook dinner for myself. So it was it was also sort of like the feeling of being perceived and and not watched because he wasn't like examining or judging what I was doing, but I became much more conscious of it and had to sort of exposure therapy my way through it until it started to feel more natural. That's really interesting. How did how did that process go? What was that like for you? It was it was uncomfortable. I used to be staunchly vegan. And I am still, I, I'm a pescatarian now. I don't eat, I don't eat poultry. And I convinced myself that I was vegan for ethical reasons. And I still don't eat poultry because I over-identify with little cows. But, <laughs> but the not eating of the cheese or like the dairy or, or eggs or fish, you know, I do think there is a healthy way to be vegan if that's important to you morally, religiously, ethically. It's just that I was using it as a way to cover things up and, and feel like I could hide the disordered thinking in plain sight. So little by little, again, the cultural differences of, you know, living with a French person with 
<laughs> it was hard to not eat eat cheese and I also I just became tired of having to look at restaurants before we went and and having to put so much thought into things. So it was sort of this meeting of exhaustion and frustration and the inkling that it didn't have to be that hard. Yeah, that's and that's really interesting what you said about veganism too, like the difficulty of untangling ethical reasons from other reasons from, you know, disordered reasons, which I think is so hard to do in this culture at this point in time, not that some people can't do it. And I think there are examples of people who are like anti-diet vegan influencers or whatever dietitians. I'm thinking of like Taylor Wolfram, for example, who show that it is possible to be vegan and also anti-diet. And I think it's really difficult to get to that place. And a lot of people might have those moments of like, those things being really tangled up, like the disordered eating and the veganism being really tangled up and hard to untangle and needing to sort of step away from it and take a pause and maybe come back eventually, or maybe not come back at all, or sort of have it be open-ended rather than like being sort of militant about those eating choices. Well, the cruel irony of this, which it's, it's kind of funny now in hindsight, but I was a double major in dance and psychology. And when it came to writing my thesis, the theme of my, like my thesis group, everyone was writing about like animals in some way, our humans relationships with animals. And my teacher, my advisor suggested that I write my thesis on the coexistence of, of veganism and eating disorders. And I was like, "Mm, that sounds silly and made up. (laughs) And I wrote it on something else. But now I'm like, Oh, wow. They maybe they spotted something that I wasn't quite aware of. Yeah, that might have been like a little like, hey, (laughs) flag this for you. Oh my gosh. That's funny. Yeah. And it's interesting that you weren't ready for that, that it sounded made up or like not real. I also had an experience of like when I learned about orthorexia, which is like why I asked you that question about like, oh, you had this sort of inkling that it was about you. Because when I first heard the term orthorexia, it was like 2006, the term had just sort of become popularized or repopularized, I guess, from Stephen Brotman's book. And I came across an article about it and was blogging for a food blog at the time and blogged about this article and was like, isn't this weird? Orthorexia, you know, whatever. And here's what the criteria are, whatever totally didn't see myself in it and was just like, these are those people over there. And I guess the way it was framed made it so that I didn't have to see myself in it because it felt so extreme. But meanwhile, I was like spending hours in the grocery store reading labels and like looking at menus before I went anywhere and like totally obsessed and very much in the throes of orthorexia and like chained up by my food obsessions and rules and stuff and completely didn't see it for myself. So it's just really interesting that it takes a while sometimes for these things to break through. And maybe the way they're presented doesn't always capture us at the right moment, or we're just not ready in that moment to see it. Yeah. And I I try to have a lot of empathy when I see the dumb TikTok videos or Instagram posts or get annoyed with specific fitness influencers, you know, rising to fame for doing incredibly problematic things. I can see a lot of my former habits and thoughts in the type of thing that they're posting. I know that like, you just don't clock it until you clock it, but it's, you know, it's still frustrating. And I also think that there's a lot of privilege involved in me even being able to have empathy because I am at the end of the day, even as 
a recovered person, still a thin, able-bodied, many levels of privilege. So I can't imagine what it's like to be scrolling through your feed and be in a, a different body and how toxic that is, how, how othering that is. It's really awful. Yeah, completely. Like having that level of empathy requires a lot of distance, I think, and distance that, that not everybody has the privilege to have. Well, I mean, speaking of toxic feeds, your newsletter is called <laughs> Well Hell, and you talk about like toxic aspects of wellness culture and fitness culture. I'm curious what aspects of wellness culture you're finding the most hellish these days. There's the usual that we've all been talking about, but I think the big trend on TikTok that I've seen a lot, and I always click not interested, is gut health. It's so frustrating because it's like, I'm sure there are people who do have genuine gut issues, but it's probably not, I don't know, some like 19-year-old in LA in a bikini is not probably the person you should be seeking out (laughs) to help support you with your gut health troubles. And just like a lot of that is, as with anything in diet culture, just so coded in anti-fatness instead of actual health-promoting behaviors or feelings of illness. So it's just, for me, and I'm sure you have the same frustration, it, it feels so obvious when you when you see that stuff. But then I read the comments and I'm always like, people are eating this up. So it's angering sometimes. Um, so gut health thing is big. And protein too, which I find really interesting because the principle of you know gentle nutrition, they say is at the end of the book for a reason because you shouldn't fixate on it. And I have like just recently come to a place where I feel like I can gently add more protein into my day without fixating on counting things, but like have this intention in the back of my mind, like, oh, I want to choose a breakfast that has a lot of protein because I'm going to be strength training today, or we're going for a really long hike. Like I, I can think of food in that way now where it's a lot more neutral, but it took me so many years to get there. And I also talked about this in my newsletter on one of the first posts being like, it's really not that complicated for so many people. And the average person does not need, if you're not training like a marathoner or a professional athlete or someone who works out for their profession, it's truly unnecessary. If you don't have a a health condition of some kind to hyper-focus on gut health or getting enough protein or whatever XYZ supplement as long as you like eat enough and sleep enough and and drink enough water most of us are going to be good to go so it's been frustrating to see that like yeah it's great like people should eat protein protein is important but it's frustrating to see like some people run with it in a negative way I'm curious how you got to the place where you can sort of embrace gentle nutrition and the nuances of that being someone who works out for a living. And also like, I have a million questions for you sort of based on (laughs) this place you're at now, right. Of like, also how you got to a place where you can work out for a living kind of, or like teach fitness for a living and not be so obsessed with it yourself. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of the food thing, I had to, not allow myself to think about nutrition. So like anytime I like a thought of like, is this clean or blah, 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 I sort of like, like I said, I'm not one to do things halfway, completely removed labels. I'd like scribble them out when I bought things or 
I would just like will myself into not looking because I knew if I looked at a label, I couldn't help but do math in my head. And it was just a lot of trying to be very honest and integrity with myself. And, you know, obviously it was not a perfect process. It took a long time to be able to, in the grocery store, not go through that or like go to a restaurant and not like look up stuff on my phone, like how much X is in in a thing of fettuccine, whatever. Also, I think a lot of people who have done that for a long time, that all that information is also living in their mind. So like there's some things I didn't have to look up because I knew it already from years of obsessively looking stuff up. So it would just be like a sort of exposure therapy, like I said, practice of being like, okay, I know that this is high in calories, but it's not going to kill me. Like I can enjoy this. This is something that someone put a lot of care into making at someone's birthday, whatever. Like I, I tried to do the thing where you give yourself like a few extra positive reasons for every negative reason that pops into your head to sort of crowd out that negativity. Yeah. I love that. And what about for the fitness piece? That was tougher. <laughs> I, I think that the, by me beginning to like cut out the negative fitspo stuff, the negative earn your brunch, whatever posts, Instagram really, I feel silly being like social media has such an impact, but it does have such an impact. By beginning to take that stuff out, I tried to focus on positive aspects because I was like, okay, this is literally my job. I don't really have the freedom or luxury right now to just start a new career because I'm struggling with this. So I had to carve out a little safe space for myself by making sure that my class wasn't using any of that rhetoric. And at the time I was director of choreography at a studio. So I would like go to other people's classes and do quality control and give teachers feedback. And I feel grateful that the studio owner that I was working with at the time, like gave me sort of like agency to include that in feedback and try to shift the culture at the studio because the whole ethos of the studio where I was working was that like movement should feel good. So and there's a lot of things that sort of like stars aligned for that to be able to be a process that started happening. You know, if you work for a major franchise as a trainer, sometimes you are teaching a script, you're using language that has been chosen for you. And that makes it a lot harder because even if you're trying to challenge that within your own belief system, if you're having to regurgitate it every day, then it's obviously going to be even trickier. But it was just really important to me to not be that triggering voice or at least do the, as best as I could to not be that triggering voice. Cause I do think it's going to be hard to separate movement and diet culture for as long as we live. That's just the reality of the situation. So I know that I'm going to do it imperfectly sometimes, but I always try to be as clear as possible and to own up when I, I fumble over my words or I say something that was maybe an automatic thought from the recesses of my brain. I also think that what is great about Pilates is that while it can be frustrating if you're so detail oriented and you want to be, you want to nail every single move because there's so much going on, you have to stay in your body. You have to stay aware. And that is really helpful for someone who's used to avoiding themselves in the mirror when they're working out or zoning out, sort of going somewhere else, thinking about their to-do list. Like if you're in a plank and, and I'm queuing like all the muscles you should be feeling all the ways that I can help you visualize those muscles working. It's a lot more grounding and embodying, you know, if you're in a safe space to be able to do that, because 
also for some people that's super overwhelming. And for those people, I think maybe you just take a break from fitness, which is a frustrating answer, but some people do need to take a little time off because it's just difficult. So you have to be starting from a place of self-awareness in the first place and then focus on the sensations that are showing up, being in your body, getting comfortable with not being the best at things because that's the only way we actually build strength is you know going through things that are challenging and thinking about all of the other alternative motivations to move. So I'm always like, you know, better sex, better orgasms, better sleep, more energy. There's so many reasons to work out. That's why it is so closely related to our health. The beauty aspect of fitness is a relatively recent thing associated to the current standard of beauty. So there's a lot else there for us to choose from if we take the time to to think about it a little bit more. How do you think people can tell when they need to take a break from fitness? Like, what would you recommend? Well, the obvious one is overexhaustion or overinjury. Like, I have, I have a client who I had to tell to take a break because she was dealing with a back injury. And I was like, I empathize with the frustration. And also, for a lot of people, exercise is closely tied to like stress management for me, definitely, and for taking care of their mental health. But at the same time, while something can be cathartic and stress relieving, or it can be the cause of stress if you're feeling guilty about missing workouts. So I always like to ask people, you know, if they're like, oh, I feel bad that I missed a workout. Do you feel bad because you don't have as much energy today as you would have if you worked out? Or do you feel bad because you feel like you are bad for being lazy or, you know, whatever other negative thing we assign to not being as productive as humanly possible? So it's like a series of questions you have to ask yourself about what's the real sentiment behind things. And I feel like I say this every time I do a podcast, it's just, it's so frustrating for everyone, including myself, because it really depends. It's one of those, there's no right answer. And that's another reason why the misinformation spreads like wildfire on the internet, because we have decision fatigue and we're tired and life is hard and we want someone to tell us what to do. <laughs> but that's not what intuitive wellness is. It's starting to trust yourself so that you can listen to your body, which is less sexy. <laughs> yeah, less sexy and less less easy, like you said, because of all the decision fatigue and the idea that we just want someone. And I mean, I think so much of this is rooted in diet culture and wellness, you know, toxic wellness culture and fat phobia as well, that we want someone to tell us what to do so that we will meet these standards that are actually really harmful. But I think part of it too is just like wanting someone to tell us what to do so that we can sort of outsource that aspect of our lives and not have to be constantly thinking about it. So having someone on social media or whatever being like, here's your workout plan for the next week or whatever. It's just like, okay, I know what I'm doing. It's easier in some way. Yeah. And this even, I even think about this same thing in relationship to quote unquote, good form. Obviously, you want to have alignment and technique when you're doing an exercise to stay safe. But everyone's good alignment is going to look different. Like my alignment will look different than your alignment when you're moving in a healthy, safe range. I feel like people get a little bit stuck in their heads sometimes about, oh, it's supposed to look a certain way. Oh, no, I have 25 years of dance training. That's why my leg goes a little bit higher. It's not necessarily going to make a difference in your <laughs> movement practice in terms of like functional gains for you to your life for your leg to get a little higher our spines are all have a little bit of a different curvature our bones are all different sizes like it, it just varies and it's 
I think a lot of, at least when I first did my first training, I would like to think that that's shifting a little. We're told like there's a right way to do a movement and a wrong way, when really there's a lot of degrees in between that that are still totally beneficial and safe. Yeah. What was it like for you to become a Pilates instructor and to train in Pilates at the time that you did? I know we spoke offline a little bit about how that was kind of so obsessive and perfectionistic and sort of the way that Pilates is often taken up by especially ex-dancers can be problematic and perfectionistic. Yeah. Well, I've been doing Pilates as cross-training for dance since a young age. And so in many ways, it was supernatural. A lot of ways that I credit it with like really helping me get through social anxiety because, like, you know, as a dancer, it's not like I was public speaking. I did a few like, you know, postmodern modern <laughs> pieces where like we're, we're, there was some spoken word, but for the majority of the time, it's being silent and, and just doing the athletic thing. So it really helped me feel confident talking to it's public speaking, talking to a group of people that I didn't necessarily know. So that also was really great for my confidence in general at a time where I was feeling all the feelings about my body. But I also desperately wanted to be really good at it because I don't like being bad at things. So I was obsessively training, observing classes, teaching classes. And it once you realize that you have these tendencies, you'll see them show up in many different areas of your life, professionally, emotionally, personally. So it was also a matter of trying to create some work life boundaries as well. You've written that your newsletter is for people who hate toxic fitness culture, but love working out. And that's such an interesting person to me because I don't see myself as loving working out necessarily. Like I love practicing yoga or I love going for a walk or like playing with my daughter or something, but I don't really love working out. So I'm curious what that means to you, like to love working out in the absence of toxic fitness culture? Yeah, I mean, I think it attracts a lot of people who were who played sports in school, or maybe went on semi professionally or whatever. But anyone who, who has enjoyed like a runner's high or the adrenaline boost after a workout or left a class feeling like, oh, my back doesn't hurt anymore. And just noted the positive impact that exercise and movement Maybe it's not a hit class. Maybe it's a gentle stretching, foam rolling workshop that movement in general has on how you feel. You know, maybe they are a fitness fanatic and they, they love to go to all the, the trendy studios and they have all the outfits, but maybe they're just someone who, who knows that they feel more creative. I did wrote a whole thing on creativity recently. And I personally found that when I don't move my body, in some way, whether that's an actual workout or a dog walk around the park that I feel spacey and I feel disconnected and I feel like sort of not grounded. So there are a lot of reasons to, to feel that exercise is an important part of your life, whether it could be that you love to conquer a new goal, you love to hold your plank a little bit longer. That's very satisfying for me as someone who has identified as an athlete their whole life. But it comes back to that finding those alternative motivators or other reasons to keep you showing up when you're feeling like skipping the workout for whatever reason. Yeah, I do identify with the spaciness and the sort of feeling like I'm not really grounded if I don't do something 
physical and it's not necessarily like a structured workout per se, but it's like going outside and just taking a walk and clearing my head or even just doing some stretches. I do like a little vocal warm up and like stretching kind of mini, you know, not yoga really, but just like a tiny stretching practice to kind of like open up my voice before I do a podcast or a speaking event or something like that. And if I do that and like spend the time really feeling into my body, it helps my mind too. It helps me feel more present and alert. And it's hard to like talk about that when some people really do need to take a break from any sort of structured fitness. But I think there is room for like these unstructured ways to move our bodies and to sort of feel what that feels like and feel the benefits that come from that. Well, and that's absolutely why I teach the way I do and why I created my on-demand studio too, because it, it felt really frustrating to me that it didn't feel like there was anywhere where I could balance those two things, where I could balance that love of the rigorous aspect of exercise and how it is really validating and satisfying for me to be like, oh, I'm really on my leg today. I just did a, a turn or a jump squat or whatever insert move here that you've been working on. It's so exciting. And that, then you feel great the rest of the day when you do something newer, better, stronger, harder, whatever. But I also know that it's very easy to take that somewhere else. So I have a really hard time finding... I'm not saying I'm the only person out there. There's tons of people that I've encountered on the internet doing this in my curation of my feed. But it was frustrating to me that you couldn't just walk into any random studio and feel like it was a safe space to test yourself physically without taxing yourself mentally. Yeah. The no pain, no gain mindset still is so pervasive. It's hard to find the different approach to fitness that you're offering. I mean, yeah, like the internet, there's lots of people in disparate places doing it, but I feel like the everyday sort of like neighborhood gym might not be as amenable to that. Yeah. And it's, it's a real shame because I hope one day that is the norm, but you do have to do a little bit of trial and error. And I always tell people that too, that obviously I hope you love Pilates and I hope you love my class, but you have to try a bunch of things and see what feels good. What is, what is a positive experience for you and your body? Not just like, do I like dancing or do I like cycling, whatever, but how is the teacher speaking to you? Are the vibes right in the studio? Can you afford it? Like a lot of times I feel like we're ashamed into spending a lot of money on wellness stuff or beauty stuff. Like the whole skincare <laughs> routine thing is something I'm assessing in myself right now too. But uh, yeah, there's layers to it. And maybe you're a bar person. Maybe you're a, a runner. It just takes a little bit of patience too. So it might be a long break and it might be a little dabbling here and there for a while too. Yeah. What do you think about people who've had a relationship with a particular type of fitness that got really obsessive coming back to that particular activity or stepping away from it and finding something else? What have you seen sort of be helpful for people or does it depend on the person? I think it probably depends on the person. I personally took a long break from dance classes. You know, I have a lot of friends who teach a dance cardio and I would do that, but it took me a few years of stepping away from sort of like the professional dance studios in the city because there's politics there as well. And it just didn't feel like I could do this work while being there. And also I sort of had this 
you know, emotional relationship with feeling like I gave up dancing. So I needed to step away from it. I've recently been going back to classes and it's been fun also because I know it's, I'm not trying to do that as a job anymore. So I have a lot more patience and, and space for it to just be a fun hobby. So I think that's probably very common for people who did like really intense sports in high school or college where a lot of their sense of self and success was tied up in being good at this thing that you could love it, but it could also take you to that edge of making you feel bad about yourself. So breaks are breaks are important and then you can come back and, and approach it in a different way and a less this is tied to my worthiness type of way. And it can be fun again. And some people that takes more more time than others. It might just it might just be a while. Yeah. It's nice that you're approaching it again, like having dance in your life again in a new way. That's inspiring to think about, you know, it doesn't have to go away forever. You don't have to step away from it and never do it again, especially since it was such a creative pursuit in some ways too. Well, even when I take maybe a dance cardio class that I don't, I don't know the instructor, I just feel like I have such a better sense of like boundaries now. Like I recently had an experience where I did go to, it was, it was a fitness class with dance in it. And the vibes were just off. (laughs) I stayed, I paid for the class, but I sort of like laughed to myself on the way home. I was like, wow, this would have really sent me somewhere a few years ago. And now I think it's just comical. (laughs) So I I do think that once you have that space, it can be something that you enjoy, even if it ends up being kind of a bad experience because you have a little bit more perspective. Yeah. And being able to laugh with yourself about it is huge. Like seeing the humor in it and not getting caught up in it, just having that distance. Even like with the body image stuff too, like I'm not, I definitely appreciate my body a lot more than I did a few years ago. But I think like we were touching on earlier, it's it's very human for people to have negative thoughts that come up. And I just, I feel so much more in control of like noticing them and not necessarily giving them the weight of fact just because they came from my brain. And it just, you know, it's obviously uncomfortable, but I have a little pep talk that I give to myself and it it does help in a way that that would have felt inauthentic or wrong or like unbelievable a few years ago. Well, that brings me to my last question, which is that the title of this podcast is Rethinking Wellness. And I started to ask people, how are you rethinking wellness in your own life right now? I think... The, the first thing that comes to mind is it's not that serious <laughs> is that I think we're like, so as a culture interested in like biohacking and optimization and productivity. And that obviously bleeds into fitness and it's great to be productive. It's nice to feel like you did a lot of things, but I just feel like for the average person, we do not need to be measuring protein scoops and counting calories and and worrying about our biome unless you have a condition that is prompting you to sort of explore that with a trained medical professional so the the prevalence of all the products out there for us to buy makes us feel like there's always something else we can do to self self optimize but i found that it is so much more freeing and enjoyable. And I'm stronger than I ever have been actually by just focusing on how I feel when I move and remembering that on the days when I don't feel super motivated to move. 
and also sort of assessing what is behind the motivation like we talked about like if i'm if i want to snooze my alarm in the morning is it because i'm actually exhausted then i need to actually sleep in and it's, the workout is not good for me or am i just feeling a little bit like off today i'll probably feel better after i work out in that sense so just trying to take all the optimization and the products and the perfectionist stuff out of it and doing the simple things, sleeping enough, moving my body, eating enough. It's interesting. I, when you were talking about that, I was reminded of someone at one of my book events years back for anti-diet who came up to me afterwards and was like, you know, I'm a really driven person. I'm really like type A and I'm good at what I do. And, you know, I have this perfectionistic side and I see that in you and I see that you're like really driven and stuff too and ambitious. How do you temper that or how do you, you know, how do you deal with being ambitious, but also, you know, not letting your perfectionism like take over? And I was like, well, for me, it's kind of like, I've realized that it's necessary to have that other side so that I don't get just eaten up by my perfectionism. I don't have every single thing in my life be done in like the most driven possible way that I have some things that I can just let go. And like, and that is the key to, you know, I think she was like, how do you, how are you like a successful person if you're not constantly (laughs) driven with everything, you know? And I just was struck by, you know, you seem to have so much of that same kind of type A tendency and that you've independently found too, that like it's necessary to just let go of the optimization and to drop the perfectionism about various different things and, you know, be easier with yourself. And I'm sure that that's helpful overall for like your, you know, career success or whatever you want to apply that sort of intense energy too, but also that you can like take your foot off the gas a little bit and give yourself a break. And that actually helps in the long run to sustain you. Absolutely. And even, you know, for the people who do have that persistent motivation to work out, I just had this conversation with a client that even if you're feeling good and things are going well, like it's also really great for your body to take time off just for the sake of taking time off. So that when you come back, you feel stronger, you can go a little harder, you can go a little heavier, you can hold the plank a little longer, whatever it is. You don't, you can't assess those things without taking adequate time off. Yes, you need like the normal recovery time between workouts, blah, 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 muscle building. But also, it's good to just take time away from wellness. It's not supposed to be a full time job. It's supposed to help us do our life. It's not supposed to be our life. And also working out at home has honestly, obviously, I teach on demand. So I'm biased. But Working out at home, like in my underwear, not on camera, I wear leggings on camera when I'm filming, but like when I'm working out by myself and I'm not like performing wellness and I'm just actually doing what feels good has also been pretty radical the last few years too with COVID and not having studios. And I do still teach at a studio just a few times a week and I have my private clients. But when I'm doing my own personal practice, I personally rarely go into studios a, because I'm snobby and I have my own opinions about <laughs> other teachers. And I really, I like what I teach. So I like to do what I teach. But feeling like I've created this little comfortable space in my home where, again, I, I also don't have to commute all over New York City if I'm just rolling out of bed into the mat on the floor in my bedroom, you know, it's a lot less high pressure of an experience. I never will have a different relationship with that. But 
finding an experience that feels like, oh, I don't have to be the champion of Pilates today. And like wear the special outfit and do all the things in front of other people and all that, right? Where it's like, sometimes you can just tone it down and like do less or skip an activity or whatever it is. Yeah. And obviously I love cute outfit, but it's good to have (laughs) two things can be true. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, speaking of cute outfits, we are going to stick around for a bonus episode if you're still up for that. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about workout selfies and, you know, how people respond to images of your body and cute outfits on social media and also more. I really want to dig in a little more on like how you're rethinking wellness specifically with the skincare routine. So that'll be on the bonus episode that we'll record in a few minutes. But in the meantime, for those who are listening to the main episode, if you want to just let them know where they can find you online and learn more about your work, that would be great. Yes. So I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Helen V. Feelin. Just Helen V. Feelin. My website is HelenFeelinStudio.com. And then my WellHell Substack is, I believe the uh, physical address is just Helen Feelin Studio at Substack. But if you search WellHell or you go to my website, you'll find links for that as well. And we'll put them in the show notes as well. That'll make it easy. And there's a 10 day free trial for my on demand classes if anyone is interested. And I am actually doing a retreat in Montenegro in October, which is going to be so fun if anyone is interested in that. But yeah, I I post a lot more so on TikTok these days because it's a little less curated and fun, but I'm I'm definitely on the internet. (laughs) Yes, you're you're a very online person, but also (laughs) not chronically online in the the way that uh, is harmful, right? Balance. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Helen. So good to talk with you and excited to chat more for the bonus episode. Yes. So that is our show. Thanks so much to our amazing guest for being here and to you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can also support the show by becoming a paid subscriber for just a few bucks a month. With a paid subscription, you unlock great perks like bonus episodes, subscriber-only Q&As, early access to regular episodes, and much more. Sign up now at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Got burning questions about wellness trends, diet fads, or anything else we cover on this show? Send them my way at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in the Rethinking Wellness newsletter or on a future podcast episode. This episode was brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. Just go to christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap to learn more and buy the book, or just go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. If you're looking to heal your relationship with food and break free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Learn more and enroll now at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Our album art is by Tara Jacoby, and our theme song is written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Take care.